0: We're back on the air after a long hiatus and with a timely topic, science policy and the Trump administration. Our guest today is Jeffrey Mervis, senior correspondent at Science Magazine.
1: One area that I think a lot of the community was hopeful on was infrastructure and the hope that that would include a scientific cyber infrastructure.
0: On today's show, we discuss how the mix of people, budgets and ideas in Washington results in policy with wide implications for science. This is the Scholarly Kitchen podcast where we gather around the kitchen table to discuss what's hot in cooking and professional scholarly communications. I'm Michael Clark, president of Clark & Company, and this is episode number 23. Before we jump into today's interview, I want to take just a moment to let you know what has been going on with the Scholar Kitchen podcast as we've been away for a while. Regular listeners will know that Stuart Wills has been the longtime host of this podcast. After 22 episodes, Stuart decided to declare victory and move on to other projects, passing the baton to yours truly. Hopefully we will get Stuart back on the show before too long to tell us what he's been up to. I must confess that I promptly bungled the baton handoff, and it has taken quite a bit longer than anticipated to pick it up and get running with it, and I promise we will retire the track and field metaphors at this point. In any event, we are now back in production and will aim to produce episodes with more regularity. We may even get some of the other chefs involved. We will be continuing with the interview format that Stuart used for the show, interviewing individuals working in some facet of professional and scholarly communications or related fields, publishing, library science, software, academic research, journalism, and many others. Much as with the Scholarly Kitchen blog, we will take a wide view of the space, looking to talk to individuals with a variety of perspectives. First up is today's guest, Jeffrey Mervis. At Science, Mervis writes about all aspects of science policy with a goal of explaining how government works to a global scientific audience. He also has a longstanding interest in STEM education and workforce diversity. He joined Science in 1993 after previously serving as news editor at Nature and The Scientist. He holds an undergraduate history degree and began his career with newspapers in Ohio and Washington, D.C., Good morning, Jeffrey, and welcome to the kitchen table.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Michael. I'm looking forward to it, the conversation.
0: Since the change in administrations, there is a perspective, predominantly but not exclusively among Democrats, that there is a war on science going on. Is there?
1: Well, I don't find that phrase to be particularly useful, both the war part and the science part, because it's so vague. For starters, I'm not sure what such a war would look like at a national level because presidents, members of Congress don't take a stance on science per se. And there is also no national science policy. There is no ministry of science. There's no science budget. What there is are particular issues and politicians take positions on the appropriate level of funding for medical research, for space science, for energy research. They take positions on particular pieces of legislation, but there's no vehicle for authorizing science per se, or even spending. The other aspect is that there is a mixture of elements that go into any kind of science policy. It's a combination of budgets, money, of people who are responsible for carrying out those programs and the ideas. And I think so far in this administration, there's been a shortage of activity in all three of those areas.
0: Using that framing, that policy is the output of money, people, and ideas. Let's use that as a frame to talk about some of the changes going on as a result of this change in administration. So starting with the president's cabinet, is there less scientific expertise at the cabinet level in comparison to previous administrations?
1: Yeah, well, that's an important issue. So let me sort of break it up into a couple of pieces. Let's focus on the cabinet level, first of all. So these are the secretaries of the you know, 15 or so departments and independent agencies. If you're talking about the number of people that hold science PhDs, the number may be zero. Don't hold me to that, but uh, I think that that's true. But that's not unusual. I think it was unusual when President Obama named a Nobel laureate to head the Department of Energy, Steve Chu. His two previous predecessors actually had PhDs in science and engineering. But going back over the years, we've had dentists who were, you know, cabinet officials. So I don't think it's a requirement uh, to be secretary of blank that you hold a, a PhD or and certainly not a, a science or engineering PhD. The key question, I think, in terms of expertise is really below that level. And that's where we're not seeing very much, if any, activity. There is only a couple of 40 or 50 science-rich jobs at the sub-cabinet level that are filled. That's a cause of great concern have the director of NIH who has been asked to stay on, Francis Collins. And then you have the NSF director who serves a six-year term, France Cordova, and she's halfway through it. But after that, you really don't have anybody yet who's even been nominated, much less confirmed and in place. And that starts with the president's science advisor, who is also the head of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, but it goes through lots of other agencies the NASA Administrator, the NOAA Administrator, the head of NIST, National Institute of Standards and Technology, an Undersecretary at the Department of Energy for Science, a head of the Office of Science, a head of the US Geological Survey. I could go on, but none of those people are in place, and the President hasn't even nominated anyone. And so when you talk about the lack of scientific expertise, that's really what I think is important. Not whether the secretary of that cabinet position understands and is trained in science, but who he or she can turn to. And right now, the only people they can turn to are in an acting capacity or career federal civil servants. And those people are very competent. I mean, they can keep the agencies running indefinitely, but they can't set policy. They certainly can't change policy or set a new direction. And that's what's missing so far in the first, now almost six months of the administration in terms of people.
0: So in looking across those agencies, NASA, NOAA, NIST, U.S. Geological Survey, and so forth, those roles are filled, but they're filled with acting directors appointed from previous administrations. Is that the issue?
1: For a lot of those positions, yes, you have an acting person, someone who's been elevated, who may have been at the agency for a long time or not such a long time, but they are placeholders. And it's in terms of having political clout, they they don't have the same stature. Now, they, as I said, then the one position where I think the community is very concerned is in the White House itself as the science advisor or the head of the Office of Science and Technology Policy. Those are two different jobs, but historically they've been held by the same person. And there's a lot of concern that President Trump will decide not to have a science advisor, which is his option, the head of the Office of Science and technology policy is a required position. It was created by Congress in 1976, and it would need to be eliminated by Congress. Uh, So it is probably going to exist, but the question is how much authority will it have? How much opportunity will it have to get involved in issues ranging from nuclear proliferation to immigration to entrepreneurship? to space to any other topic you could name. Right now, that office has one Trump appointee, the deputy chief technical officer. Everybody else there, and there's some question about how many people are actually there physically. Everyone else there is someone who's been extended or is on there for temporary assignment from another agency.
0: And the assignment from other agencies is uh, for OSTP is is usual. I understand uh, has a relatively thin staff historically, but the administration needs to, in order to to keep it staffed, renew those loan staff from scientific agencies, and that, as far as you know, has, is not happening. Is that correct?
1: Right. It would probably be, rather than renew, it would be new people. But it would start from the premise that we want to have an active and engaged Office of Science and Technology policy because we have a series of initiatives that we want to move forward on. And again, to use the Obama administration example, that ranged from you know advanced manufacturing and biotechnology and antibiotic resistance, and maker fairs, and a long list. And in each one of those, you know, the White House decided we want to be active. We want to coordinate activity across agencies. We want to work with Congress on legislation. We want to work with international partners if the issue was climate, for example. And so John Holdren, the previous science advisor, increased the overall size of the office with detailees, as they're called, because he wanted additional resources. And he had the opportunity to do that and to work with Domestic Policy Council and the National Economic Council and existing offices within the administration. That's not happening in the first six months of the Trump administration. There is just no or almost no activity at that level.
0: Last week, we heard about the revival of the National Space Council. How does that fit into the picture? Is is that activity that historically would have been part of the remit of OSTP? Or is this something very different?
1: It's interesting because the National Space Council has a very checkered history. I think it goes back decades, but more recently it was created under the first President Bush in 1989 and led by the then Vice President, Dan Quayle. But what's interesting about it, it it was, if anything, a counterweight to NASA. Uh, Even though it was supposed to be coordinating space policy across the government, it more often found itself at odds with NASA and the positions and policies that that agency was taking. And that is one reason why after President Clinton was elected, the council just disappeared and there was never any great... Push to revive it. So it's sort of curious that 25 years later, the Trump administration has seized on this as I think you could argue its first major science related policy initiative, because that's not the role that the Space Council has played traditionally. And it it certainly hasn't gotten into science issues, it's gotten more into commercial space. Efforts, and I think the experts that follow this think that that's probably why it has risen to the top of the list, at least for the Vice President Mike Pence, who is now going to be the chairman. But it has a series of members from various agencies, and one of them is from OSTP, for example, for which right now there isn't anyone. Another is the NASA Administrator, for which there is no permanent person. So. It's an open question of what the Space Council will actually do, and not just will it move the ball forward, but will it go in any particular direction.
0: There also don't seem to be prominent individuals from commercial space ventures associated with the National Space Council either. I noted the absence of anybody from SpaceX or Blue Origin there.
1: Yes I think that's true and I think you know some of those companies have not necessarily been big fans of the new administration and that may be one of the reasons you you didn't see them there last week.
0: Let's move on to talk a little bit about money. Okay. So wh- where are we right now? So the administration proposed uh, earlier this year, sharp spending cuts related to science, among other things, but for purpose of our conversation up to science in the 2017 budget, those cuts were rejected by Congress who actually passed a $2 billion increase in science funding. But that just takes us through 2017 or the 2017 fiscal year, um, I should say. Where are we in terms of 2018? What is the process and timing and where are the various proposals as far as you know?
1: Right. Okay, well I will try to sketch this and then we can go into more detail if if we want. So the full 2018 request from President Trump was issued in May. There was a blueprint a so-called skinny budget in March, but the full fleshed out version was submitted to Congress in May and almost universally criticized by Democrats and Republicans on the specifics. Although philosophically, the big change that Trump was proposing was a big increase for military spending and a big cut in domestic spending. So since then, Congress has taken up that budget and begun to mark up individual appropriation bills. So these are the bills that actually fund specific agencies. And just in the last week or so, a half dozen of those bills have been moved by the Appropriations subcommittee. There are 12 of them. And by and large, the president's requests have been ignored or rejected. That's not the same thing as saying that science agencies are getting everything that they want. But what appears to be happening that in most cases, the congressional appropriators so far have tried to give the agencies close to what they received in 2017. And as you said earlier, for some agencies like National Institute of Health, that included a sizable increase. Now the NIH budget for 2018 has not been marked up. So we have to leave that aside. But for agencies like the National Science Foundation, for NOAA, for NASA, so far those agencies are doing much better than the 2018 request from the president. Now there's a long way to go. The House has to finish work on those bills and they may do that this month. But the Senate hasn't even started to work on them. And it's not clear when they will start, but it's certainly the case that they won't finish by the end of the fiscal year, which is September 30th. So I think most people expect the current level of funding in 2017 to be extended, what's called a continuing resolution, into the fall and possibly beyond. And for a lot of agencies, that's not a bad level. It's not a bad place to be compared to where they would have been under President Trump's proposal for 2018. But it's still an interim. And the reason things are so much up in the air is that the Republican Congress hasn't managed to pass a budget resolution that sets overall spending level. From which then the appropriation committees can then know how much they have to spend. So in lieu of that. The appropriators are basically have come up with their own number, which is very unusual. But their argument from Paul Ryan and others was we have to do something and that, you know, we don't want to just sit on our hands. And so they are moving bills without the budget resolution. Now, the reason they don't have a budget resolution gets very complicated. It has to do with, believe it or not, repealing obamacare and also tax reform but the reality is that the numbers that the house is dealing with so far are hypothetical in the sense that they don't have the force of a budget resolution behind them all of which is just to say things are very much up in the air but for a lot of agencies as i said that's a better position to be in than deep down in a hole, which is where they were when President Trump submitted his budget request for 2018.
0: One of the other contentious issues related to science in the proposed 2018 budget, the the budget proposed by the Trump administration, is the reduction in indirect costs associated with NIH grants For those of us not intimately familiar with grant administration, what does this mean and what is the issue?
1: Right. No, it's a a complicated issue, but it's important. So let me give a shot at explaining it. So what's called indirect cost recovery, and the third word is also important, is money that the federal government, a particular agency, gives to a university. Let's just talk about university-based research for the additional cost of supporting the direct research that they have funded so if nih gives a grant for a hundred thousand dollars they will give the university an additional fifty thousand dollars let's say we could talk about how that formula is derived to support everything that needs to exist in order for that research to go forward that includes the physical plant, the utilities, the electricity, the grounds, it includes the people in the Office of Sponsored Research, it includes all the effort that goes into meeting federal regulations, you know, whether it's disposing of toxic chemicals or experimenting, you know, with human subjects or animal care. So all of that are things that in theory the university might not have to do, except that the federal government requires it. That's sort of the regulatory part. And then the other part is things, the infrastructure that needs to exist for the scientist to be able to do her work, you know, in a laboratory. So what the Trump administration is saying coming in is, gee, that seems like, unnecessary overhead, you know, the use of the word overhead rather than indirect cost is obviously deliberate because overhead generally is seen as bad. You want less overhead, the better. And they've said there are several billion dollars that in NIH alone, but it applies to every agency in theory, is spending on this overhead that's unnecessary. And wouldn't it be better if that money was given directly to scientists to do their research? So what they proposed with the NIH budget specifically is to cap the percentage that could go to indirect costs overhead and said that that would free up several billion dollars that you could then use for research. So NIH wouldn't need a bigger budget. In fact, they could even get by with a smaller budget, but they'd still be able to do more research because we would be spending so much less on indirect costs.
0: As long as that research doesn't need extra buildings or <laughs> HVACs or, well, or so forth. right? Well, fine. of course,
1: it's flawed logic because it wouldn't be possible right. to do research. I mean, both literally it wouldn't be possible and legally it wouldn't be possible because you have regulations and you have rules about what you have to do. And, you know, that's the way the system works. So it's unrealistic in that sense, but I think it's it set a shot across the bow because it's not the first time anyone had proposed this. But the message was: we think these indirect cost recovery rates are too high, we think agencies have been too lenient, we think universities have taken advantage of the government, and we want to crack down. So the question is: how will that play out? In the end. Even if these proposals that Trump has made don't go into effect, will there be a change in how the government reimburses universities for the cost of research? And if so, what impact will it have? How large will it be and what will it mean?
0: And how does that change get made? In other words, is, is that simply a HHS rule? that something Tom Price can do or the president can do? Or is that something that requires a act of Congress?
1: Yeah, I think it's all of the above. First of all, I should say it isn't indirect costs do not apply just to HHS. There are actually two federal agencies that negotiate them. One is HHS. The other is in the Defense Department for historical reasons, the Office of Naval Research, actually. So universities negotiate their rates, and they do that annually or for three or four year periods. So that's all regulatory. And the rules that they follow are set by regulation. So yes, agencies have some control. But Congress also has control. Congress could put into legislation, either in a spending bill or in an authorization bill, that we are going to change the system in this way. So as I said, all of those players could be involved and it wouldn't have to be done in one fell swoop and it could apply first to HHS and then to other agencies or it could apply in some areas. I mean, there is an infinite number of, of ways to tweak the system. Because the system itself has grown up over time, over decades, basically since World War II. And so you can't dismantle it in one fell swoop any more than you can create it out of nothing.
0: We've talked about research funding and its impact on universities. But what about STEM education and training, You know, looking at the other side of the university, as well as other organizations. What are you seeing uh, in terms of the current state of support for funding related to STEM education in the 2018 budget?
1: Yeah, well, again, that's another area where it's sort of easy to oversimplify because the federal government, based on a study done about a decade ago, estimates it spends about $3 billion on STEM education, but that covers everything from graduate research fellowships to outreach by museums, and at all levels, you know, from pre-K to postdoc. So there has been a push for several years to try to streamline that system. There are some people that feel it's, there is redundancy, that several agencies are doing the same thing. I think the agencies would disagree with that, but there was an effort starting in the Bush administration. Interestingly enough, the Obama administration also proposed a streamlining of federal support for STEM education, which went nowhere. It was rejected by Congress and that wasn't even a Republican Congress. So the issue is bipartisan in the sense that STEM education has bipartisan support. At the same time, Trump administration this year, for example, has proposed eliminating the Office of Science Education at NASA, which is about a hundred million dollar a year effort. Relatively small compared to the overall, but again, symbolic, sending a message that this is not something that should be a priority at NASA. Now, of course, the Department of Education has a very large component of that total amount as does the National Science Foundation and NSF's education budget as marked up by Congress this week would be flat so it doesn't propose any cuts Department of Education's budget well hasn't been marked up yet so the president's request did include large cuts in STEM education in specific programs so unfortunately the answer is not a simple It's doing well, it's doing badly. It's certainly something to watch. And it's something that if you care about a particular program, you might do well to engage in what's happening to that program at that particular agency. But it's hard to make an overall statement because things are not just in flux, but there are lots of agencies involved.
0: We've covered people and we've covered money. Let's turn for a moment to ideas. What ideas related to science or science administration are emerging from the White House or the Congress as we turn to 2018 and the next fiscal year?
1: Well, at the risk of oversimplifying, so far there's been very little. I mean, what we've heard so far and what has gotten all the attention is rolling back regulations put into effect by the Obama administration the executive orders by you know president Obama we talked about the space council but that's to me a relatively minor policy issue one area that i think a lot of the community was hopeful on was infrastructure And the hope that that would include a scientific cyber infrastructure that could renovate and strengthen the capacity for the academic community to do its work. But so far, the administration has put very little political capital into its infrastructure proposal. Um, It's there, but it's mostly a private sector effort. It's mostly focused on concrete bridges, ports, roads, airports. And so there's very little policy on immigration. Again, in the Obama administration, there was a lot of talk about high-tech immigration, for example, making opportunities for entrepreneurship from other people from other countries. I mean... That never went anywhere in the Republican Congress, and certainly in the Trump administration, that is anathema. And all of the discussion about immigration is how to block and prevent, not how to encourage and and broaden. And energy, again, the policy has been very much focused on overturning rather than doing anything new. Even in a sub area like advanced manufacturing, which in theory should be something that the Trump administration should be four square behind as a way to create jobs. There really hasn't been anything in the president's budget or in his rhetoric that suggests this is an initiative that he wants to continue or even, you know, modify in a serious way. So it's very hard to find anything so far. And again, part of that may be there aren't people in those agencies that would be coming up with the ideas. It may be because if the White House is proposing cuts to most domestic programs, it's very hard to start something new. And partly it may be that it's not a priority. I think all of those are elements in the fact that very little has emerged in the area of policy.
0: Let's turn to talk about the March for Science that took place a couple months ago here in Washington. It was a significant event in that I can't recall another march or rally of this sort for science in general. What have you heard in terms of repercussions or things that have come out of the March for Science, has it been effective
1: as far as you can tell? Yeah, well, I think the March for Science has sort of turned out to be what people both hoped and feared. <laughs> and now let me explain what I mean. So I think it was, as you said, a unique expression of concern by not just the scientific community, but by the general public who supports Science. And I think the number of people, whether it was a million or whether it was some other number, and the number of cities, not just in the US but around the world, was impressive. And I think what has happened positively is that has energized people and led people to think about what they can do to be more active politically. You know, everything from contacting their member of Congress to deciding to run against their member of Congress and everything in between. But I think that expression has been confined to the people who already supported science. I think the polls that have been done about the march itself and who participated and what the public thinks about it have shown that it was a sharp ideological split. For many Republicans, it was a non-event. There were not any significant participation by Republican lawmakers at any level that I know of. I don't think they felt pressure from their base to participate or to be interested in the issues that were being raised. There was a subset of the marchers who were very explicitly anti-Trump there was a larger subset that was sort of pro-environmental but i think that split pretty much along traditional party lines so i think it's an open question about whether there is any long-term impacts again i think the proponents want to use that and build on it and i think we'll just have to see between now and 2018 how successful they are i don't think the republicans to this point have paid any political price for not supporting it or opposing it. As I said, it's for them, it's pretty much been a non-issue.
0: What is a alternative for scientists and people who care deeply about science and scientific issues to advocate for their position?
1: Yeah, well, again, I think that is not a new question, of course. I think the Trump administration and the March have put it on the front burner, but I think what most people feel is getting involved means becoming active in ways that you can see a tangible change when whether that means on a particular issue or whether that means a particular person or whether it means you know taking it on yourself to run for office at any level, be it school board or county council, uh, not necessarily at the national level. I think that's what people are saying they need to do. You know, I think it's pretty clear that just lecturing people, whether it's on climate change or whether it's on immigration or healthcare, is not going to change people's minds, much less change people's votes. And so I think that's what the community is focused on, but there's a long history of that. I mean, that's not de novo territory. And so there's a lot of research to draw on and a lot of history, you know, to take advantage of. And there are people who have done that, walked that route, and they are, you know, eager to provide advice and support.
0: On behalf of the Society for Scholarly Publishing and the Scholarly Kitchen, we Thank you for joining us at the kitchen table today.
1: I enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me.
0: And thank you for joining us at the kitchen table. Be sure to visit the scholarly kitchen online where every day the kitchen's team of pundit chefs serves up a fresh helping of what's hot in cooking and cooking in the work of professional and scholarly communication. You can also comment on this podcast on its blog page, and we'd love to hear from you. The Scholarly Kitchen is a production of the Society for Scholarly Publishing. This is Michael Clark. Until next time, on behalf of SSP and all of the chefs in the Scholarly Kitchen, bon appetit.